Blog Talk Radio. Footprints. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me tonight is Angela Walton Raji. Well, a special welcome to the callers and chatters to the show tonight. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show is a conversation between Angela Walton Raji and me about my new book, Tracing Their Steps, a Memoir. So let me just give you all a little background. A friend asked me if my grandmother knew any former slaves or were any of her grandparents enslaved. So I asked my grandmother, And she looked in my eyes, and a serious look came over her face when she said, no, not just no, but a long no. (laughs) You can imagine (laughs) hearing that. Well, her body stiffened, and I could tell that I may have touched on a sensitive issue. However, she had more important information to tell me. But we first had to look at the photos in the album. She slowly turned the pages to an old picture and began to stroke the photo. This is my granddaddy, Peter Clark, with Uncle Moses. And my granddaddy owned a lot of land in Marpas, Louisiana. Now, the lucky, loving, loving look on her face, I mean, if you could just see her face and, and the softness uh, in her voice made me realize that she was sharing something very important with me. She was smiling, and she sat up straight and proud, and I immediately felt a kinship to, to him because of how Mabeki's voice changed as she began to speak slowly, saying her granddaddy's name, Peter Clark. Well, Angela, I'm turning this story over to you. Well, you turned it over at the perfect place, Bernice. And uh, good evening to you and, of course, to all of our, our listeners and the chatters out there. I am so excited because I have read your book. And I feel like I know my Becky, and I can see her as she looked at you and 
said in answer to your question, no. She <laughs> was, I mean, I had to, to chuckle when I heard that, but I felt that at the same time she was telling you something. And when she said he owned a lot of land, I realized and actually reading those words actually explained to me some of the things I've heard you talk about over the years. And because I've seen you and during parts of those process, did not know at the time I was witnessing chapters being written as I saw you finding the land. But let's start out. Can you give me a time frame on when you had that conversation with my Becky? Like what what year are we talking about when that Okay, so occurred? we're talking about we're talking about 1994. And my grandmother was 100 years old. She was wow. born in 1894. Mm. Oh, my goodness. And so you're still having, she's not obviously a a person who was suffering with dementia. You're having a very serious conversation with her, and she, she's telling you some stories there. Did you understand the impact of what she was saying? You realize she was serious, but uh, what happened that the story began to take shape or take a hold of you? Well, it was it was something that just stayed with me even when I began to do my genealogical research on my father's side. I I knew that there was something that I still needed to do. It was like some unfinished business on uh-huh. researching my mother's side. And that's the grandfather. Okay. The great great grandfather is on my mother's side of the family. Okay. Okay. So this is now in the in the 1990s, uh, and she was 100 years old. How long did she live? She lived until 2000. So she was almost oh, so she 106 wow. years old. Oh my goodness! And so she saw the new century. She saw the new millennium. Oh my goodness! She certainly did. Well, mm-hmm. were you writing the story at that time? Or what was happening at that time? At the time when she passed away, I mean, I was working. I had all kinds of responsibilities, but the words never left me, and the picture was always with me. And so I knew that eventually I would have to take it to the next level. Okay. So then the the journey itself then began. Um, now, I guess some of this is the beginning of your genealogy research journey anyway. You started researching the family and realized, okay, I need to go back and find a story about this land. What You mentioned you started with your dad. What made you eventually come back to this Louisiana story? First of all, my mom was still alive. And she was very helpful with me with the research on my father's side of the family. But, you know, you get to this stage where you say, wait a minute, mom is still alive. Uh I need to do this while mom is still with me. And she was there to to provide firsthand guidance 
and make connections that I would not have been able to make. But because she knew it, she lived it, she knew the story also because her grandmother told her. I see. So then what then transpired? Let's look at you and your mom then. Something else, I guess, after my Becky has passed away, she's planted the seed, my granddaddy owned a lot of land. And you begin to hear this repeated also and confirmed from your mother. What then else happens? We're now in early 2000, the years start to pass, my Becky passes away, uh, but your mother's still there. And you start to look at certain things. What begins to unfold? What happened during the early 2000s that well, sort of got one of you the things, propelled? Yeah. Well, one of the things, my mother really understood me. And so uh-huh. she understood that I would have to have evidence. I'm really into, well, can you find uh-huh. this document? Or what do you have to prove this? Or what can you tell me about Peter Clark? And my mother said, there's a Bible. I think ah. Peter Clark's name is in that Bible. And mm. she said it. Okay, so okay. I'm figuring, okay, there's a little Bible somewhere, wherever it is, never thinking that my mother had taken it to the next level. And she tracked down this Bible. Wow. Well, um, so the Bible was in the house or in the neighborhood or no, the, the Bible. Okay, so the Bible was in Covington, Louisiana. We're talking about I'm in New Orleans. The Bible is okay. in, in another parish with my ah. mother's cousins. Uh-huh. And so mom got on the phone and she started tracking the Bible and she realized that her minister lived in this town. <laughs> she had her minister oh. go and pick up the Bible. <laughs> That's my mother. The after the Bible. Oh, my. Well, they couldn't tell the reverend, no, he couldn't have a Bible. <laughs> That's wow. right. That's, That's right. So the Bible came home. So it's now at mom's house. And is that where you first saw the Bible then? Okay. So let me just kind of set you up. I okay. went home. In, in May of 2005. Now, when oh, I walked yeah. into my mother's house, on the table was this big box. I didn't think, oh, what's this big box sitting on the table? Mom just looked at me with this little smile, and she said, well, open it. And you have to know oh, how my, my mother goodness. speaks. Open it. I said, okay, you're up to something, Mom. Uh-huh. I'll open this, and there was this huge book this Bible, and I'm jumping up and down. Mom, she said, I told you I was going to get this Bible, and I opened the Bible, and I was, you know, I had to open it slowly because the pages were very fragile, and I came upon a page with Peter Clark's name in the Bible, and he was born in 1855, and that was written in the Bible, and he died in 1909. Okay, wow, wow, so that in itself, now you have documentation that this man actually existed in a family artifact. Yes, yes. 
Absolutely amazing. Yes. You mentioned that this was 2005. I seem to That's remember right. that year for um, another reason. Something incredible happened that year, if I recall. Something truly um, incredible happened. It was somewhat, uh, it was uh, grabbed headlines around the world. Uh, you said this was in New Orleans. Your family, yes, your mother Angela. lived in New Orleans? Yes, so my mother, my, my entire family lived in New Orleans. Um, and so... Was your family affected by, you know I'm talking about Hurricane Katrina. Uh, tell us what happened to the Bible and the family and the... the that's a critical year. It changed everyone's it's, life, I'm It's sure. a critical year, and I tell you, you know, it had to be faith or something that said to me, send that Bible home. And home to me was in Maryland. And so because I was in New Orleans for um, my class reunion, the day I saw the Bible was also the same day I said to my mother, can I take papers? Can Would you just give me, may I just take these papers? And she had all kinds of documents and things. She said, sure, take them. Oh. I said, I promise I'll send them back. I'll just send them home, scan them, and send them back to you. So I shipped the Bible home. When I arrived back in Maryland, the Bible and all of the papers that I grabbed were home. And let me tell you what happened next. Hurricane oh. Katrina in August. So this was if in I had what not done this, year? this was in oh. August 2005. Hurricane Katrina. Katrina was what Katrina. a month or so later. Uh, that was May. Katrina was August. Oh wow! Yes. Wow! Yes. So you got you saved that family Bible. Oh my I saved gosh. the family well, Bible. I saved a portrait that was on the wall. I just happened to take a picture. You know how you have these oval pictures on the wall of my mother's oh, grandmother. Oh yes, with a glass. Yes. 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 I I didn't take that because I mean obviously wouldn't let me take her grandmother's picture. So I just took a picture of it. Everything was destroyed. The house was destroyed. Oh my God. It no mm. longer exists. Wow. Thankfully, I don't know if you'd call this um, what divine intervention, but um, wow, you you saved really part of that story. Um, that's incredible. So thankfully, does the Bible still rest with you? Where is it now? Or... Oh, I still have the Bible in the box. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, that's. Uh, there's a lesson right there, an incredible lesson um, in terms of preservation, the need to not just preserve things, but, I mean, of course, one cannot predict a disaster when it may happen, but the need to take pictures, to scan pictures of the pictures, to take pictures of the old, of the pages in those family Bibles, um, because sometimes maybe the electronic image may be the only thing that may survive. And that is an incredible lesson right there. Oh, my goodness. Well, certainly I'm sure 
the family and the ancestors are, are thanking you for certainly doing that. Wow. So at this point, having lost so much, having lost other things in the family, uh, artifacts, heirlooms, that had to make even just the, those papers and that family Bible even more precious. When did you start to feel that, you know what, maybe it's time I really accelerate this journey a bit and start to go after this story more aggressively? What happened? What turned you, the curious genealogist, into now the serious researcher going after the story of Peter Clark and his land? What happened? What what happened next is that I still was in my verification mode, and I said, you know, I need to find another piece of document documentation. I have the Bible. I have the oral history, which was fantastic. But I needed to see either a death certificate or something about Peter Clark. And so mm-hmm. I just I sent a letter to the Louisiana State Archives, and they had a death certificate oh. on him. Which, you know, I didn't know whether they would have one or not, and it was consistent with the date in the Bible. So that was one piece of verification. Yes. The other was that his name was in the Times-Picayune newspaper. Oh, okay. Yes. I'm like, oh, my goodness. But, yes, his name was in the newspaper. So you're beginning to realize, oh, okay, I'm finding things now, and there's more than I can find. Clearly that was something that was happening. Well, of course, you haven't stopped going to New Orleans, obviously. Um, well, I guess I'm just kind of curious. What happened? What, what took you back to Louisiana in a different way to start going to these old home places or this going to Maripa, Louisiana, um, and you didn't go alone. You took your mother with you, right? Oh, yes. I mean, she she was just a guiding force and just a joy. And to lose everything, oh. to lose your home yeah. uh, was a very difficult period for her. And so mm-hmm. I really saw going back to Louisiana with my mother was therapeutic, Mm. but she was also living the journey with me and helping me, Mm -hmm. which with with all of her energy in her life, and I want to tell you, we're talking about somebody in their 90s. Uh, She just had so much energy and said, oh, yeah, my mom was, she was right on target, and she talked a lot. She was a storyteller. (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Well, tell me about that first trip, I guess, going back. What was it like to drive to this community you didn't know a lot about, but your mom could talk about that? Um, What was that for you like, uh, going to to this community that, uh, I mean, she's also getting sort of a therapeutic benefit from traveling back, but you're also learning so much. I'm I'm just learning so much because uh, at, my mother's one of those people. If you put her in a car 
and she starts running. <laughs> she starts talking oh, okay. right. and talking about, you know, hear the mosque and look at the swamp and look at the, oh, the birds. She would talk and, and just share a lot of stories. And she was my GPS. I didn't need a GPS. That's all I needed to do okay. was listen to her. Turn left, turn right, keep going. And she started telling wow. me about where she was born. And we stopped at relatives' homes, a relative's home, so that they could then turn around and take us to Marpas, my very wow. first time ever going to this island, Marpas Island. Mm. And uh, it, it was a surreal experience to to drive around this little rural community and to say, wait a minute, this is where my grandmother was born, my mother was born in this little town, and it, it was just a, it was a good feeling. I, I felt like something was calling me. If, if you could think mm-hmm. of a, a, a spiritual journey, I, I really yes. felt like they were calling me to, to make sense out of that oral history. And for my grandmother's oral history to just stick in my head. It never went away. It's just that it was the right time for me to really move on what she told me. To go on that. Well, when you visited this area for the first time, did your mom uh, share things about growing up in that part of Louisiana? What was it like for African Americans growing up in this rural community? And, uh, And what happened... What was the catalyst that encouraged your mom to end up in New Orleans as opposed to still not being in that area? Well, my mother was a very fortunate person to have a grandmother. They called her Mama Isabella. Uh And my mother was her only granddaughter. She had two grandsons and this one granddaughter. And when uh-huh. my mother was born, my grand, her grandmother made it a point of saying, my granddaughter will not work in the field. My granddaughter is oh. going to school. And okay. I heard that story so many times from my mother <laughs> because her grandmother had a big influence on her life. Okay. Okay. And is that what ended up taking your mother to New Orleans? the chance for education? Education was definitely one of the reasons. Education uh-huh. for my mother and other opportunities for my great-grandmother. Plus, her okay. sister was already in New Orleans. And so okay. while mom's fa- mother and father were still in this place called Killian, Louisiana, they said it was okay for my mother to go with her grandmother so that she could go to school. So she could go to school. Wow. And I think you I read that she attended McDonough thirty five, is that correct? That's right. She attended McDonough thirty five. That's right. And oh, graduated yes. in nineteen thirty five. Wow. Oh look at that. Well McDonough thirty five is uh a very important school and having worked in higher education for many years when I used to recruit um students 
for um, studying um, university studies, that was one of the schools that uh, I recruited students from. It has an outstanding reputation to this day, so that's that's quite good. Well, then, at a certain point, you really started going after the family in the records. You started combing through those um, census records, as we all do, and looking, and you're finding the family. But you made an interesting discovery, um, and one that you described in your book is kind of discovering something that was kind of unthinkable. Uh, let's just talk about that a little bit, When this discovery that you made. Well, I mean, there were so many discoveries, but one discovery I, know, that's I true. made. <laughs> well, but what one about of the, the dis- young bloods in particular? <laughs> yes, one of the discoveries, and and you know, I just want to keep saying, I was constantly looking for evidence. I was constantly looking for Peter Clark's name, and so right. because my grandmother stated that she was named after her grandmother, Rebecca Youngblood. I wanted to okay. be able to verify that. And as okay. I began to to look for documentation, I found as you said the unthinkable. And that was uh-huh. a newspaper a newspaper article written uh around 1883 and it described uh, uh just a horrible incident of one young bro- blood brother killing the other. But they also oh. mentioned in the newspaper that one of the brothers ran to his brother-in-law's house, the disreputable Peter Clark. So this right there, disreputable, <sighs> but right there, right there with that sentence, brother-in-law, wow. I said, right. Grandma was right. <laughs> There's a marriage. Her grandmother There's said a marriage. there was a young blood there was a young blood connection just like wow. that. I mean, and I think, you know, when you start thinking about doing this research, you have to say, my ancestors almost like putting things in front of me, putting things in yeah. front of me. Because he's saying, you're going to find me. <laughs> Somewhere, right. somehow, and- you're going to find me. And while I wasn't thinking I would find that, I did. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Um, did you find yourself occasionally being, I don't know if the word sidetracked is a good word, but did you find that occasionally, wow, I'm not looking for Peter Clark. I've got to find something on these young bloods. And did you find yourself kind of going down or going in a different direction? And how did well, you deal with that if you did? I, I have to admit, I, it wasn't a straight line. You know, I had okay. some twists and turns that I had to go yeah. through. But but I I still had my eye on one thing, finding the land. But, yes, yeah. I did go sideways because uh-huh. after I learned about the young bloods, and I just said, wait a minute, I need to find out just some more about the young bloods and discovered that my great 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 grandfather Thomas Youngblood who's the father of Rebecca Youngblood on land he was a farmer I did not expect okay. to find that I was not looking for that 
But th- but this is something that you know when we start looking, things just yes. start appearing, and it's significant to your journey. And so that piece of the journey, I think it it needed to come forth. I needed to see it, and so that's what it was. It sounds as though you were looking at some things and. I don't know if the word is distraction, but it was an important distraction because it later came back to help you painting the entire background to present the story better. And so as you look and you see, you could have dismissed it and said, well, I'm not looking for the young bloods. I'm just looking for Peter Clark. But it ended up being um, a significant part of the story in terms of the fact that you just mentioned, oh, Mr. Youngblood also owns some land. Hmm. This is beginning to take some shape at this point. And so you really had to follow some of these clues. You had to follow those, those footsteps and see where they were taking you. Well, you're finding now these people are farmers. What are you learning or what kinds of things are you grasping from this? Um, you're seeing, okay, yeah, my granddaddy owned land. Thomas Youngblood owned some land, too. Um, did that lead you in another direction? Well, it did lead me in another direction. Now, I I wanted to find out how Thomas Youngblood acquired his land. I could not okay. find anything. I even contacted the, the land office uh, in, in Baton Rouge, and I looked at old land papers. I could not find anything Maybe because the courthouse burned down, but this is what Uh, I did find. You you know, this is you can't do this journey sometimes without saying, "Wait a minute, let me go to the courthouse." Right. And I spent a lot of time in the courthouse, and I discovered Louisiana. Okay. In Louisiana, and so I discovered Mm -hmm. yes, in Livingston Parish. I discovered um, a case in which someone decided they wanted to do secession or probate on Thomas Youngblood's land when he passed away. And his two Ah. sons hired an attorney. Get a load of this, folks, an attorney. Wow. This is 1883. And they hired an attorney. What year was this? Yes. 1883. Yes. Now, I'm I'm a very excitable person. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes, they did. Yes. Okay. And, okay. And one of the brothers said, I am over the age of 21 and perfectly capable of handling my father's estate. Wow. Okay. Wow. This is very, well, this is eye-opening because I would think that you had not grown up with many stories in Louisiana about African-American families uh, as landowners, as having estates, having um, an ability to hire attorneys to fight for lands that that had belonged to them. And uh, I would assume that this was eye-opening for you. It was, it was of course, very eye-opening. I mean, because we were no longer in Reconstruction. 
we were now right. in Jim Crow. And Absolutely. so I can imagine the tension in that community. And yes. it probably would have been very easy for the person that claimed to have been uh, trying to get the land in the best interest of the young children. Well, I want to say something was not right with that. Mhm. So what did you? What did you? What direction did you take that? What did you do? I documented it. I studied the story, and then I moved on. And sometimes, you and need that's to all know I can say right important. now. You know, there, there's a point okay. when you can you can get fixated, and you can keep trying to figure out what happened. But I still needed to continue my journey in tracing the steps of Peter Clark because I I right. now could see that I was running into other people because right. there was a community right. there and I needed to really okay. get a feel for what was going on in that community. Wow. Well at this point we're why don't we take a break right now, Bernice, and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna get we're gonna get back to Peter Clark and finding his land. Welcome back to Ancestors Footprints on Blog Talk Radio. Before we get started, I want to mention something that registration is now open for the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, which is the only genealogy institute where all tracks exclusively focus on African American research. The Midwest African American Genealogy Institute that we know fondly as Maggie is a place where attendees learn, research, and gain the tools needed to become a stellar genealogist and a family researcher. The dates this year are July 9th through the 11th at the Genealogy Center of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For more information about Maggie, go to the Maggie website at www.maggieinstitute.org, and we hope that we will see you there. And, um, of course, I am talking with Bernice Alexander Bennett about her new book, Tracing Their Steps, a memoir. It is hot off the press. 
it's a journey that she really took to verify oral history that her grandmother shared with her, that her own grandmother, meaning Bernice's second great-grandfather, Peter Clark, Clark, owned so much land, a lot of land in Maripa, Louisiana. She went through painstaking research through just any number of distractions and unexpected turns, but she did find something about this land, and that's where I'm going to go right back to you, Bernice, because you really were able to find out something about Peter Clark as you're into this land mode. What did you discover about Peter Clark? Well, first of all, I discovered Peter Clark on a Freedman Bureau record in ah. 1868. Now, I can tell you, I was really I was looking for the land, but I was trying to also get a timeline and a, some kind of parameter that would help me determine just when this land could have been acquired. And so I looked. As far as I could, I went to the 1870 census. I could not find Peter, but I continued oh. to look further, and there was Peter on the 18 on an 1868 labor contract in the Cox Plantation of Livingston Parish, Louisiana. Now, on oh. that plantation, we had Peter Clark's mother. For the first time, I never thought that I would ever find Peter Clark's mother. Her name was Katie Clark. But he also has siblings, Hester, Olivia, Anne, Emma, and a brother named Bob, all listed on this labor So, again, folks, as I said, Bernice does happy dance things. You know, that's me. I have fun. (laughs) But I was so so excited (laughs) because... I mean, it's it's like Peter Clark is saying, "Here, great great granddaughter, here I am. Find me, here you know." And there, yes. and there, there is Peter Clark. Wow, amazing, amazing. So you talked about how you kept looking, you kept looking around. Um, you came upon another set of records, but they were not parish local parish records or State of Louisiana records. You found something else. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, Because I had the parameters of when Peter Uh Clark could have owned this land, I decided to just thought, let me see, could he have acquired his land under the Homestead Act of 1862? Uh-huh. And and that was a hunch. That was a hunch. Maybe he, maybe that's where this land came from that my grandmother talked about. And yes, okay. he did. He did acquire his land under the Homestead Act of 1862. A hundred and fifty-nine acres. Tell me about your reaction. You had a hunch. So you obviously went to the National Archives, or did you go on the Bureau of Land Management site? What did you do? How did you find it? I first started with the Bureau of Land Management, and I put in Peter Clark, and his name did come up, and the St. Helena, what they call Meridium. And he had to apply for this land 
at the New Orleans Land Office. Okay. On the Bureau of Land Management site, you will get a certificate number and a patent number. And you will also see the image of the patent, and you right. will also see the image of the plat. So you would know just where this land was located because it, it's provided to you. But one of the yeah. things, Angela, and I, I try to tell people this, don't ever stop with just being happy that you found this land patent. Because so glad you, you need that. to take it to the next level. And that next level means that if he actually acquired this land, there has to be a paper trail associated with this land and it's land yes. entry papers. And that was what my next step. Find? I went to the National Archives. And let me just tell you, when I ordered the file, and I went to the research room waiting for my file. I felt like everybody was in a slow-motion movie. I mean, everything oh. was so slow. And, oh, it was just killing me because my papers were taking so long to come. <laughs> and then, and then they brought me wow. this box. Wow. And when they brought me this box, and you have all of these land entry papers that are folded and I came to the to the folder that had the certificate and the patent number and I pulled it out yes. and I opened it up and I could feel I got to have a take take a moment here <laughs> getting a Clark, chill right yes He's I could feel Peter Clark I could feel Peter's sister, his daughter my great-grandmother that they call Mama Isabella, and my grandmother, my Becky, standing over my shoulder as I could mm. peel open each record and read it. My name is Peter Clark. I am a native of Louisiana, and I am over the age of 21. From Marpas, wow. Louisiana. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? I mean, you have just taken the listeners to a point, well, I would just say it's pure joy. Um, wow. I mean, you've been looking for this, and finally you get not only an answer, where did you get the land, but you're reading something that you're touching a piece of paper he touched. I'm sure there's a signature or an X or something that he touched. His DNA was on that page at one point. And here you are um, looking at that. And let me ask this question. At that moment, did you realize that you had a story you had to write? I realized that there was a story to tell. And I was telling anybody who would listen to me (laughs) about the story. About this oh, land, well, you know, that my grandmother was right. And and the, the best oh. part of this, though, is that I could get on the phone because my mother had moved back to New Orleans. My sister said, you know, my sister rebuilt her house. And I could get on the phone and call my mother and say, Mom, I found it. And she's like, oh. what? I said, Mom, I have the papers, and I even have a newspaper oh. clipping. And the newspaper clipping is listing the names of people that served as his witness. And wait a minute, Angela, you have to hear this. 
I named the people Marshall Douglas, Charlie Baptiste. And she said, Charlie Baptiste? I said, yes. She said, oh, I know Charlie Baptiste. Charlie Baptiste has a brother named Pete and a sister named Jane and a sister named, she oh. was going on, Delphine. And I'm like, what? My mother she knew is these saying people. she knew who they were. But wow. the interesting That's thing amazing. about Charlie Baptiste is that he was also a witness to my grandmother's wedding in 1913. And I'm Whoa. looking at this okay. document, and I'm seeing, I'm saying to myself, wait a minute. I'm now in the community. Okay. This is a community story. It's right. no longer just right. me looking for Peter Clark. This is the community these men yes. are here, and I needed to know who in the world are these witnesses. Wonderful. Oh, that's incredible. One of the names that you put on uh, in your book among the witnesses, the name that jumped off the page, well, first of all, those young bloods had jumped off the page because we have young bloods in my hometown. And then another name jumped off the page among those witnesses that is another name because I think some of these people migrated from Louisiana, and I know where they migrated to. That surname was Tinkshell. And um, there are Tinkshells in western Arkansas. And so just seeing that, and here your mother is talking about these people. Oh, well, I know Charles Baptiste, and his sister was Delphine, and so on. You're really, I think, reflecting or showing the listeners how important it is, number one, to also share what you find, but also all those little details. You could have just said, I found the land and never read the witnesses to her. But the witnesses are important. The witnesses are critical. And your mom illustrated that. That's incredible. Well, clearly, it's, you know, definitely, I certainly feel that you were guided uh, by something beyond this world that we know. Can you transition a little bit? Because this is an incredible story. But at a certain point, you decided to write this story. Was it hard to make that transition from Bernice looking for this story and finding incredible things to now now Bernice the writer? What was that like? Well, it it was difficult to transition to determine just how I wanted to do it because mm, I had mm-hmm. written articles. I've taken various elements of this story. I've talked about just the Freedman Bureau and finding him on the yes. Freedman Bureau. I've talked okay. about who are the witnesses. I mean, I even have a mm-hmm. Legacy Tree uh, webinar on who are the witnesses. And I right. told the story without a hint. There is no story. So uh, all of these different elements have been presented to the genealogical community. Plus, I've, I published an article in a journal about Peter Clark's land. But I decided I wanted to tell the story just like you're listening to me right now. And Uh that's the way I wanted people to hear it in Tracing Their Steps, a memoir. I wanted it to be a story, a story that you could read quickly and get the essence of what it was all about. 
I didn't want you to get too into the weeds, which I could have done. But uh-huh, I decided, uh-huh, right. no, I don't want to put people through the weeds. I want people to read it, understand it, relate to it, and let it inspire them. Because, well, I have yeah, people yeah. coming behind me, and they're going to want to read the story. They want me to tell the story. Even my daughter, Mom, what's the story? I don't want to know your document. What's the story? And ah, she's good. She's really story. good at telling me stuff like that. Don't tell me you found a marriage license. What's the story? So I decided right. that's where I was going to go. <laughs> I was going to go with the story. And I think it's been done effectively. Well, tell me a little bit about your process, Bernice. I mean, you were now not going to Maripa, Louisiana. You were not running to the archives. You've got these records. You've got this incredible Incredible thing that you're putting together and weaving together these families. How did you go about the process? Did you methodically just sit down one day and then write uh, for five or six months? Or what was your process? How did you put the story? Well, How did you I put your off, together? I started off with an outline. And okay. I, I had to say, I mean, what was my end? My end was the land, okay? And yes. then I had okay, to yes. I had to build build this story. I wanted people to to understand my motivation. Why was I going in that direction? And I wanted to give yes. people just a little of the backstory so that they could get okay. a feel for. Wait a minute, she's going somewhere. And so uh-huh. it started with an outline, and I would just fill in the blanks and fill in the blanks okay. until I had what I felt the direction I wanted to go into. That you wanted to go. So what did you do? Um, uh, was this something you did every day? Was this something that you set a goal for the week, uh, uh, you know, set aside three hours a day? How? What did you do? Talk about the process. You, you, you mean you want to know how I, was I disciplined? <laughs> Yes, I guess so, that is what I'm asking. So, yeah, so let me let me, let me just let me just <laughs> tell you. This is a story that should have been written ten years ago. <laughs> so, okay, uh, okay. To, I understand. To, to really get myself where I needed to be, I was a part of the uh, genealogist writing room, and okay. Anita Henderson. Every month, she would throw out a prompt. And you would just write. Okay. You would just write. I also uh, tried my work with uh, the NaNoWriMo. And, you know, oh, yes. with that, yes. you just write, write, write. You don't go back. You don't deal with your, your grammar. You just write. And so I just had to put myself in the writing mode to just write. Okay. To just write. But and so once I got to that place... I didn't hear you. I said, how did you get into that zone of writing? How did you get into that that mode? You know, your head has to be in a certain place. My head had to be at a certain place, and I had to make a personal commitment to myself. And that commitment to myself meant that I would wake up every morning at 6 o'clock. The house was so quiet. And I would just sit and meditate and just start writing. And I'd let the story okay. tell itself. I'd let the story mm. tell. I'd take it, I'd, I'd say, take me where I need to go. 
dear Lord. <laughs> you know, take me to the place where I first heard about this story. And the first thing I could tell you was I remember the way my grandmother's house smelled when I walked in and she cooked gumbo. I mean, it just took me <laughs> to the place. Yeah. <laughs> you got wow. it? Wow. <laughs> okay. And I, just, and I just started writing. And then I hit a crazy period where I don't know, you know, that's all you have to do is have a few little things happen and you stop. And I lost my rhythm. And I turned mm. to I turned to a sorority sister, and, and she has written okay. several books. And I said, you know what? I need to get my book written. I need to tell this story. She said, tell me the story. And I told the story. Girl, you have that story? This is the way she was. I said, okay. Her name is Christine. And Christine okay. said, well, I tell you what, we're going to set up some goals, and I'm going to call you every day, and I need my chapters. Oh. And that's what I started doing. I would get up because I, she was my accountability partner, and I would write. Mm-hmm. And I would send her a chapter. I, she didn't have to critique it. It wasn't about that. It was about me writing and being disciplined. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I would write and send her a chapter. But don't let me miss because she was saying, you can't leave me like that. You have me hanging. This is a cliffhanger. you got to give wow. me the rest of the story. Yes, and yes. So, that was effective. And so with very that, mm-hmm. it, it, it's very effective. And it's one of the things that I would tell anybody that's writing, that if you want to get something done, you may need to reach out and get a little help from your friends. But somebody uh-huh. that's going to uh-huh. be objective enough to push you and not let you right. push them and say, don't call me anymore. I've had it. I'm not writing this anymore. Because there was mm. a point in time where she said, okay, Bernice, are you finished? And I said, oh, I'll just let God be my guy. <laughs> she wrote, <laughs> God gave you the skill. You write that. Don't tell me about yes. God right now. <laughs> and so. <laughs> wow. But it worked. Well, it, it did work because have... because I I I I managed to get this manuscript written. Yes, and then yes. the next step yes. was to just start sharing it with people well, and getting feedback and feeling question. comfortable. Yes. yes, that was going to be my next question. After you finished this, um, you know what what did you do with that? Um, um, and not necessarily in terms of book production, but which is a valid question, but you started sharing it with people. Was that hard to do? Because, you know, a lot of people are shy when they write. Was that hard for you to do, to share some of the no. pieces with others? No, it was because not. I was okay. looking for constructive feedback. I mean, I started uh, off with a lot more words than what ended up in this book. I mean, sure. I probably have more words to go to another another book because oh. as I shared mm-hmm. and I received feedback, I started making my own changes and deciding I'm oh. too much in the weeds. I'm getting into too much detail. I mean, oh. I gave a whole lot of background, and I took it all out. I just took it all out and said, okay. no, I want a story. And I need to keep it as a story. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons, Bernice, from all this process. And there are others who are listening to you who also want to write and want to share. 
what kind of advice, I guess, because I'm hearing, for example, as you speak, um, well, of course you did the research. We all do the research on the various directions we go when we're, we're looking for these various uh, answers to our own genealogical questions. But as you were, if you were to advise others who are saying, you know, yeah, well, I, I got something I'd like to write, would you give them a certain amount of advice or what kind of advice would you give them? Um, because at some point, you had to stop searching. You had to start saying, okay, let me put something together. And then at a certain point, you had to stop writing as well. What advice would you give those who are aspiring to do what you've done? Know where your end is, which means uh-huh. that you begin okay. with your, yeah, know where your end is. And okay. stop digging. You just have to get to this point where you say, I have enough. I'm done. And if there's more that needs to come, because, yes, I've found more stuff since I've written the book. Yes, it's still coming because Peter Clark is still after me. (laughs) But there's a point (laughs) in time where you have to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to tell this story great-granddaddy. Wow. I'm ready to have people understand the steps. And so I just have to, I have to write it. Now, when you talk about advice, what what would I tell people? First of all, Mm -hmm. I would tell people when you are writing, always have in your head that you need to have a professional editor. Good advice. Yes. For me, I had Jean Cooper as my uh-huh. professional editor. She from Shortwood Press. And so you know, don't think that you don't need an objective person to look at your manuscript. Don't think that you're uh-huh. so good that you can just give it to your girlfriend to look at <laughs> and your girlfriend <laughs> is going to say it's good. You need to right. put it in the hands of somebody else that's going to look at what you have written. I mean, that's the and, the piece mm-hmm. of advice I would say. But know, know where your end is and know where Very you want to go. Know what kind of voice you're going to have when you do this story. And I change my voice. Some places you're hearing my, grand, my mother speak. You know, some places okay. you may hear somebody else speaks. But that's the way I tell stories. And right, so I had to right. be true to myself uh, as to what kind of book I like to read and yes. then write the kind of book I like to read. And I don't I don't want a long book. I want a story and that that's my yes. that's my advice. Now when it wow. comes Excellent to advice. Yeah, now when it comes to how I would tell anybody to do this Always start mm-hmm. with yourself, even when you're writing. Start with yourself. Mm-hmm. Start with yourself yes. with your research. You know, I didn't yes. jump online. I didn't jump online for a good while because I was too busy mm-hmm. making certain that I was covering all of my bases with living people that had firsthand yes. information to give me. And so because important. of because I had my mother, I took advantage, full advantage of Thank my goodness. mother while she was here with me. 
So I thank my mother and I thank my grandmother because without the two of them, I probably would not have gone on this journey. Or if I had gone on this journey, it would have been very different. But because I had them. Well, tell people where they can get a copy of your book. Okay, you can go to my website, www.JeannieBRoots.com, and you have buttons that you can push. You can push a button for Amazon.com, or you can put push a button for PayPal. If you push a PayPal button, then you'll get a signed copy because that will come directly to me. If you push the the Amazon, of course, it'll come directly from Amazon. So you have a choice. Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Well, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I have enjoyed it so much, and I hope that our listeners have been just as inspired, certainly by your story, not just the the journey that you've taken, but also the process that you've followed. And Bernice, I can't thank you for allowing me to just chat with you and get you to tell your perspective of how Tracing Their Steps, a memoir, came to be. Thank you, Bernice. Well, Angela, I want to thank you. Hey, you put me in the hot seat tonight. Yes, I did. I love it. Is there? Is is different? Let me just say, I'm used to being that person, but I want to just thank you so much for for joining the conversation. I want to thank all of you in the chat room. Thank you so much for listening, and for those of you that purchased the book, now you heard me say what it was all about. And I just want you to please remember, your ancestors left footprints. You heard about my footprints and tracing their steps. And you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, just like Mabeka shared with me, family records, remember that old Bible, and research Uh. at the National Archives and beyond. That's the courthouses. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Smith. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining Ancestors Footprints Blog Talk Radio. And check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. And I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Angela Walton Raji. Good night, Bernice Alexander Bennett. (laughs) Good night, y'all. Take care.